getting in your own head about thought-provoking topics? Read along with a stress-free book club that fits into a busy lifestyle. From out of the pages to real life, explore the fine line between fiction and nonfiction as we pull from bestsellers that will change your life. Tune in to our bi-weekly book club of mind-bending and empowering stories hosted by Nova Lorraine, founder of Rain Magazine, and her two co-hosts, Toby Santagato and Barbara Donato. Welcome to another episode of Tuesday's Book Club, where we bring you best-selling novels that are sometimes also controversial that will change your life. I am your host, Nova Lorraine, and I am here with my lovely co-hosts, Toby and Barbara. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hello. And for our listeners that are joining us for the first time, our books are both smart fiction and nonfiction that are provocative that will take you on a journey of transformation. And so if you are looking for the most convenient book club and most transformational book club, you found it. So don't delay, subscribe, share, like the show, and make sure you come back for our next episode. So today we are covering The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. And before we dive into today's book, I want to share with you our next two books on our list so you can go out and get those and follow along. We have Hunger by Roxane Gay. And following that, we have The Cafe on the Edge of the World by John Streckley. So again, that's Hunger by Roxane Gay and The Cafe on the Edge of the World by John Streckley. So ladies, the Joy Luck Club, why don't we set the foundation for our listeners that have not read the book? I'll just share like we usually do a little bit from our publisher. Let's see what the publisher has to say about the book. The Joy Luck Club was published in 1989 and written by Amy Tan. The book follows four women and their daughters. The women emigrated from China and joined together in San Francisco in 1949 to play Mahjong. They formed a club they called the Joy Luck Club. At the meetings, they gossiped while playing and ate a variety of foods. One of the women, Suyon Wu, designed the Joy Luck Club on a club she formed with some women while they were in China during the Japanese invasion of World War II. It was called the Joy Luck Club because the women always wished each other joy and luck when they left each other. The Joy Luck Club is divided into four parts, each containing four stories told in first-person point of view, exploring the conflicts of four mother-daughter pairs. Each part begins with an allegorical story that distills the themes of the stories that follow. The mothers met in San Francisco's Chinatown after World War II and formed a social club called the Joy Luck Club. Most of the novel takes place in the late 1980s with lengthy flashbacks to the mother's youth in war-torn China. So that's the summary from our publisher. So now, what did you think? (laughs) I related to it. I really did. The mother-daughter dynamics are so complicated and my daughters are my best friends, but certainly we've been through a major journey over the years. And I think that it's complicated being a mom. Yeah, same. One of the things about the book is it talks about the mother's experiences when they were younger. And then then it talks about the mother's experiences with their children. And to me, it's kind of like the mothers look at the daughters like, 
they're aliens, like they don't understand them. But I think the mothers in this book never connected, never really figured out, well, let me take that back. Because some of them did at the end that they figured out, you know what, there's certain things that in my life that I put on my child or I didn't put on my child. And now I see the consequences of that. And now that my child is an adult and for me, my mother is getting on in, in years. And there was a lot of times where, you know, now that she's older, I'm like, I don't understand why she's doing this. Why is she acting this way? But I spoke with my brother and there's a, there were things that happened in her past that now that she's getting older and she, her, she's starting to remember what her, a little bit more about her childhood, or maybe her childhood is just resurfacing, whether she likes it or not. And so she reacts to certain things that she, that are kind of like, that remind her of the past. And now that I know that, I deal with her differently, I think. I respond to her differently. But had I not known and had my brother not told me, I would still be perplexed as to like, why are you overreacting to this? It's not that big of a deal. And I think that the children in this book did the same thing with their parents. Like, why are you acting this way? Or why are you overreacting? Or why are you not acting enough for me? And the parents are doing the same thing with their kids because they're not connecting. What do you think about that, ladies? Well, I would have to say I really enjoyed this book, even though it wasn't like a complete joyride. Ha ha, joyride. <laughs> and I saw it from three different perspectives. One, my parents immigrated here from Jamaica. I was born there and I came here when I was really young and was raised in a very traditional, large Jamaican family, an extended family, one of six. My mom is one of 12, and I believe nine of her siblings live, or nine of them live within 10 minutes of each other. So I was seeing a lot of these stories through the eyes of myself as a child growing up in a home, being raised by immigrants, and also from the perspective of the child, because I am the first generation going to school here in this country. And trying to see, well, do I relate to the perspective of the daughters? Because we're getting both perspectives, the mother and the daughters. And as a mother with daughters, standing in those shoes and saying, wow, am I, am, I, am I bringing this legacy with me and putting it on my girls? And then finally, from the perspective of a social scientist, having studied psychology and sociology and all these things in, in grad school, what is it like for first-generation children in this country and just seeing that struggle, seeing that conflict and understanding it intimately where you're not completely on one side of the fence or the other? You're always like in the middle. You're very different from your parents. You're very different from your American cultural friends or their families. You're sort of in this really unique space in the middle and how that can affect you. So just from the sociological perspective, I found it fascinating and seeing how these women, both the mothers and the daughters dealt with these issues, not just the the struggles that the, each of the mothers came to this country with, but the dynamic between the two of them, like how they had to reconcile or needed to reconcile in their older age. So I just thought it was fascinating as an observer, but then also having a I can't say the same journey. These immigrants are from China. I'm from the Caribbean. But just being a child of immigrants, being born in another country, being raised in a very different cultural 
with cultural expectations that were very different from American cultural expectations. There was a lot that I could relate to over and above just the mother-daughter dynamic. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And I think Barbara had said before we started recording that she's read this. This is the only time I read it. But if you've read it at different times in your life, and I'll, I'll let Barbara talk about that, where you're more like the the daughter, right? And then you read it as a mother, it's probably really even more compelling because now you see both sides. Like my, I have adult children. I have a, a 24, a 27, and a soon to be 30. It's crazy. The other day, I she said she was going to be 30. And I, for some reason, thought she was going to be 29. And I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> but to me, like, as I'm not a daughter so much as I'm a mother now. So, and I didn't read this as a daughter. So for me, I think that what's interesting as you get to have adult children, if you're continuing to work on your relationship, there is some kind of full circle things that occur. Isn't there like a thing like, a poem or something when you're younger, different ages and relationships with daughters and mothers, right? And then there's like, you're annoyed with them and then you like them and then you wish they got you and then you wish you had more time with them. And I'm in that period now where I think that my daughters, there's some forgiveness for some of the things that I didn't, they know I didn't do anything intentionally uh, horrible to them, but I certainly did certain things that they didn't appreciate. And now understanding my history, they're able to have some forgiveness of understanding that it wasn't malicious. And I'm interested besides that to know which of the characters did you guys relate to the most? Because I have mine, my choice. But with Barbara, how did you feel with the different perspectives reading it at different times in your life? Barbara, how did you feel with the different perspectives reading it at different times in your life? So yeah, like I, I spoke a little bit before about this with you ladies off of the mic. When I was younger, I don't recall if I was just married or I just had my first two children, but I was very young and I just didn't have that real mother perspective. So I did. I empathized with the daughters because I still at the time didn't understand my mother. My mother also is an immigrant. She's from Haiti when she's first generation here in the United States. And she was super excited to be here, super excited to become a citizen. And she, was what my dad would call Americanized. And he used to pick on her a lot. And because she really let go of a lot of the traditions of her culture. And even when we were in the house, my mother really wanted us to only speak English. So it wasn't until I was a lot older that I myself went out of my way to learn Creole, Haitian Creole. And I didn't understand my mom. There was a lot of things that she would say to us. There are a lot of things that she would do. She was sometimes hyperprotective in certain ways. And then she would give us a lot of freedom in other ways, in other areas. I didn't get her. Even when I was, like I said, even when I first got married, I didn't get her. But now I have a 20, almost 21-year-old. And I have an 18-year-old. And I empathize with the mothers. <laughs> empathize with the mothers. And this is something about the book that I don't think I articulated it earlier. The mothers went through things in their lives when they were younger. And when you are a person and you're a human and you get another human, you're not thinking, oh, now I'm a mother. And now I have to think about every single thing I did in my life and teach my daughter to be this great person based on my life. 
I don't think we think that way. I think we just continue to move as time flows and we work with what we remember or what's in our head at the moment. Sometimes when we go through something that's very drastic in our life, then we're like, okay, we're not going to do this with our child. And then we either go above and beyond to make sure it doesn't happen, or we go the opposite way. And sometimes that will either negatively impact or reinforce certain things. And I noticed that in the book, Toby, you asked who I identified more with, and I'm going to say Waverly. Oh my God, me too. Okay, you tell me why. Because her mother, Lindo, was very strong. If you, we're going to do spoilers. (laughs) In the book, she was forced to live with someone at the age of 12. She was, and then she had to marry the person, I think at 16, I think I was, if I remember correctly. And the mother-in-law was so mean, so mean to her. Like the husband was mean, like every, pretty much everybody was mean. And she had to be resourceful. And she was like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be in this match for the rest of my life. I will die. And she really came up. I mean, for her to be so young and sheltered, and I mean, she moved into this family at 12 and was like, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I know exactly how I'm going to get out of it. And she made her own way. And she made her own way. But then when she came to the States, if you ladies recall, she talks about how when she came here, they told her, tell them you're religious. Don't, you don't have to tell them what kind of religion you are. Just let them know you're religious. Don't tell them you're going to have kids. And I think for her to go from somebody so powerful, and then now she has to be like, I don't know, she has to tone down her strength and to the point where she made herself like, I have to be American. I have to be American. I, I have to have my kids. American. And so Waverly, you know, was named after the street they lived on. And so she did so many things to make her child assimilate to the cultures that she was currently in that she started to regret as she got older that she went overboard. And she made, she perhaps did too much. She perhaps was too strong. And now she raised a too strong child. And that is what I resonate because my mother was very, very strong. And in a lot of ways, she allowed me and pushed me to be that strong child as well. But then as I got older, she didn't like that I pushed back with the strength that she gave me. And so I, in turn, raised my daughters to be strong. And sometimes I get a little irritated with the pushback that my 18-year-old tends to give me. So you, but you relate to Waverly in how, is that what you're saying? You're relating more to Waverly, not really her mom. No, I initially related to Waverly. Now I relate to Lindo. <laughs> no, that's interesting. It's funny because I actually disagree a little bit with how you see how things just evolve. For me, I think it was the opposite. So it's so funny. I think everything I did was super intentional. I had a childhood that I didn't like. There were so many things that went wrong as a kid from start to finish. And I wanted intentionally every single thing to be different. I was definitely not important in the ways that I wanted to be important. So I know as I know they loved me now and I know that they were doing what they were doing, but they were divorced and they were in relationships. And so nobody was paying attention to what activities are you going to be in and are you successful? And so I went crazy and I 
put my kids in every single activity that is imaginable. I had them compete in every single activity imaginable. And our my expectations of them were so high and my husband of them as well. And I related to that pressure that Waverly felt. And my kids were, unlike her, very respectful and like little soldiers. But as adults in extreme therapy, um, feel that while they forgive me for all that pressure and don't necessarily have strong regrets because they feel like who they are as people would be, they don't know what they would be and they, but they didn't have all that going on. So you can't take those things away, but also feel like it was a lot. It was a lot of demands on them. And I mean, they didn't revolt like Waverly, but certainly I look at the mother side of it and the mom just wanted the best for them. And how it translated was in a demanding fashion for Waverly. And my kids are overachievers, but I now look back and say to myself, like, that wasn't about them. It was about me, you know, and these moms consistently were raising their kids in ways that were about making it different than what they went through. And it's an interesting dynamic. And it's when you get older, you hopefully and actually through this book, you do see them coming full circle. Waverly at, at, at the end is like, she's about to get married and she's at the salon and she's like, we look like each other. And like, there's a sense of like forgiveness, but it took so long and it was pretty tragic. I'm so lucky that just the other day, I, one of my daughters texted the other daughter and said, isn't mom your best friend? And she was like, definitely. And what a full circle, wonderful thing that my kids love me and call me their best friend, but it's been a journey. And it's hard to be a mom. So, I mean, there was a few things that each of you said that was really resonating with me. And I don't know if you had asked me, which do I relate to that I'd jump out and say this one or that one, because there was little pieces in each story that I was thinking about, okay, this child or this friend or this person or my mom or her. So, but when I think about it, I would have to say, the narrator's mother, and I believe that's Suyan Wu. And from the perspective of here she is in this town that she's seen, I mean, her vision of this town, is it Taipei? I can't remember the town that she went to in China to be safe from the Japanese invasion. And here she is in this town of all sorts of people from all over the country coming to find a safe haven during the war. And it sounded like the conditions were horrendous. And from sickness to lack of resources to cleanliness to all sorts of things. And she was able to find some sort of peace within the moment and find the the positivity of having these women around her focusing on these friendships, focusing on positive thought and conversation and sort of creating the life that they would want to be living, even though they were in the middle of this war and sort of created this fantasy almost, but it was their reality and playing these games and developing her skill set at this, I guess, tile cards that they would play this game. Mahjong. 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 And then she got a warning. She didn't hesitate. She knew that the Japanese were coming. She didn't argue with the soldier that came to warn her. She grabbed her things as much as she could carry, and then she left. And she had to walk for four days. 
for, I don't know about you guys, I may have walked for four hours, but I don't, I've right. never walked for four days. Me neither. And with two little babies. And so what I was relating to was one, her sense of positivity, her resilience. She had to, on this journey, leave her infants. And I could not imagine having to make that decision. No. Leave oh her gosh. infants behind. And the, all that she had to come to the, that she had left were these three layers of silk dresses that she was wearing. Just that, that's all she had. By the time she reached the town, four days later, she just had what was on her back. No food, none of the things that she started the journey with, not even her children. And to be able to move forward with such tragedy in her life and start anew, I could see how she put her, that what would be perceived pressure on June. Right. Ying Mei, her American name, June. And, but then from the daughter's perspective, I could see June's pushback. Like, why why are you putting all this pressure on me? And she never, she never shared why. She never understood her mom. Yeah. As a mother, having seen the horrors that she's seen, having lived through the tragedy that losing her husband, losing her infants, and coming to this country, not knowing the language, still not fully speaking the language, and starting over cleaning homes, okay? She had a nice life before the war. And all she wanted and all she saw was the potential in her daughter to be something great, to reach a level of aspiration that maybe she envisioned when she was playing Joy Luck Club back in China. But she never expressed that to her daughter. And I feel like a lot of times we as mothers, we have all of this history within us. We have all of this experience within us, both the joy and the pain. And that comes out in our expression of how we speak to our daughters, the activities we choose to do or not do with our daughters, but we don't give them the story behind it. So they have no perspective, right? And growing up, I remember my mom would always say, education is important. Your education is important. Like almost every time we (laughs) went for an errand, put your education first, put your education first. And so that's all that stuck in my head was get your education before you focus on anything else. Like if you have your education, then everything else will come. That was pretty much the story. But I never knew why. She never stopped to tell me her story. And to be honest, I just learned new parts of her story this past Christmas holiday. Wow. And here I am, you know, mother of four and thinking I know all that I can know, not all, but a lot about my mother and her childhood, I found out some details that were probably some of the most impactful moments in her life. And I'm just now finding this out. And when I look back, so many of the lessons that she was trying to teach me growing up made so much sense because of what she had gone through. And so maybe as parents, we don't think our children will understand or even care. Maybe they're not ready for those stories. Maybe we're too... Maybe there's embarrassment or shame associated with those stories. Maybe there's pain associated with those stories. We're, as parents, supposed to be the guardians and know this and that and right from wrong and blah, blah, blah. I am the first one to tell my kids, I don't have all the answers. I know I am not a perfect parent. I am still learning how to parent. Four kids later, this is a journey. It doesn't stop. And with friends like you, Toby and Barbara, and these incredible books that we're reading each and every week and the experiences that I continue to have, all of that contributes to me being a better person and also trying to be a better parent. And so I think for me, the the mom, June's mom, 
uh, Suyan, her resilience, her ability to see positivity, even when her daughter said some really, really mean, hurtful things to her. She didn't lash back. She just stayed quiet. Yeah. I can only do how much I can do. And she let go. And June knew when she let go at that moment around the piano. And I was just, the more I learned about her, the more heartbroken I was about her death. Oh, I know. It was just like, oh my gosh. So it's like so close to getting to a point where it would become full circle, which is the greatest situation. And it didn't happen. And it was, it was very sad. Really yeah. sad. But I think also like in a spoiler alert, by her going with her dad to China and seeing her siblings and like, it's so strange how you could never know someone, but that somehow like there's the nature nurture somewhere in there. The nature is they were connected, even though they didn't know each other. So I think that she saw them and was like, oh my God, our mom's face is in all of us, no matter what, who we are as people. It's really hard to detach from, we are our family. We are our family dynamic, the good and the bad of it. My dad always, the reason why I never let my kids quit anything was because that was something I appreciated from my parents. They were very anti-quit. You just don't quit anything. You started it, you're going to finish it. So we pull a lot from our parents and we pull some, we do things with our kids that are against what we didn't like about our parents and also the stuff we thought made us better people. Like my parents made me finish my stuff. And at the end of the day, to a fault, sometimes I made my kids finish stuff. And I think it's interesting how we'll pull that from our parental upbringing, the good and the bad. And then we're a myriad of that. But my, unlike Barbara, I feel like mine was so intentional moment by moment. I was overthinking it and making sure everything was so, every moment was accounted for and that every, that they were my primary focus to a fault. Like I lost myself. I really only was a mom. And it's only till now that I found myself. And in that freedom of finding myself, I'm closer than ever with my kids. I love that you said that, Toby, about losing yourself. I literally was just having a conversation with my oldest daughter, how important it is that when you're in a relationship, and a lot of times when we think of relationships, we think of the romantic relationship, right? But it's also friendships. It's also familial relationships to not lose yourself. And it's so easy. It really, especially in a relationship. Yeah. And I think that for those mothers that are listening and fathers that are listening, if you can pass that guidance on to your children, no matter what age they are, because we could see in this book, these women in their 30s were making changes in their life, active changes in their life, in their 30s, just having these lessons that they were being taught as children start to sink in. So it's never too late, I think, to learn and pivot and grow. And if we can continue to teach our children to really, in whatever moment they are, like plant their feet firmly on the ground and spend that time of self-reflection to figure out who they are, what they are. I feel that at least in a culture where women, again, grew up in a Jamaican culture and the women are at least at that time, my mom was born in the 40s and the women at that time were raised to take care of their husbands, like everything, <laughs> like everything, yeah, and, everything for them. And my mom actually 
was going through a divorce and my dad ended up raising us, which was so difficult. And she would explain Mm -hmm. to me, yeah, she went, she lost uh, the court case and the kids, myself and my brother went to my dad in a time that no, that never happened. And what that stigma was for her was incredible. She's a very strong person. She definitely is why I'm strong. I'll never forget. I remember she sent me into like a 7-Eleven or some little store with some money to buy something. And I didn't come back out. And she finally came in and she's, what's going on? And I said, and this is like a pivotal moment. I said, well, people are getting in front of me. And she said, you see this? This is money. It doesn't matter if you're little or big, you're in line. And she was like, you just stand up, you take care of that. And she taught me. And I, it was a pivotal moment of never letting people just walk in front of me because I'm equal. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And she was always imbuing those wisdoms to me and made me a very, very strong person. And she's a very strong person. What she endured as a single mom and all those stigmas and we were close. And so I think that she definitely, but did I bite it back sometimes? Sure. I was like, you know, wanted my own space and wanted to be left alone. And I think that the, one of the greatest lessons I've recently had with my relationship with my daughters that I see in the Joy Luck Club, thank goodness I'm happy that in the Joy Luck Club, these women are kind of coming full circle in their 30s and my daughters aren't at that age yet. And I think that I'm lucky that it's happening earlier because life is quick. But the as soon as I let go of what's going to happen, we've had freedom to have a better relationship. And I think that if you raise your kids, not perfect, but with the tools that they need, like a coach, you know, when you're in middle school and high school, the coach is hands-on, but when you get to college, you should, or you're a pro, the tools are there. And then the coaches are just there to manage, not necessarily to be so hands-on. So if you've given all those resources, it's so hard to let go because all you've ever done is raise them as a hands-on parent, but you've given them those tools. So I have a daughter that's always going and doing and may move here and may move there. And I've really been trying to get her not to leave. And then I finally just said, like, I became a fatalist. Wherever she goes is going to be so much fun and I'll visit. And that'll broaden my experiences because I'll have on her coattails. And I think by, she said it to me, she said, by you letting go, I feel less likely the need to run away. I may still go, but it won't be to run away. It'll be because I'm going. And there's like a a point where we have to let go. And it's so hard. If you're listening and you're a mom, you've given your kids the tools and you have to let go. And in this story, so many of the moms, until they let go, consistently enjoy Luck Club, until they let go, there is a little bit of a rift between the parent, the mothers and the daughters. So I want to ask Barbara this question. And I, I agree with you, Toby, on that. Letting go is... I think it's the lesson of life. <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> it is the lesson of life. And when you had said something recently, like you are okay with whatever happens and you've given them the tools. And that's something that's so freeing as a parent because, you know, we want to be there. We want to have that safety. We want to be the safety net for them. And I remember having conversations with the, my kids recently, both the boys and girls. And I said, you know what? I've come to realize that I cannot protect you from the bruises, the scrapes on your knees that you are supposed to have in life. And it's the hardest thing because as the parent, you want to run in and you want to catch them. But if they don't fall sometimes or get scraped up and they're not going to learn from those lessons, they're not going to become stronger and they're not going to grow from those instances. 
And recently I had to share with one of my daughters that this is not my journey and I have to learn to let go. This is your journey and I have to be okay with whatever happens on your journey. I can only be here to support you and guide you, but I cannot make the decisions for you. And so I think letting go is such a great thing to share with our listeners because it sounds a lot easier than it is, right? And it's on every level. It's on every level of our life, not just with letting go of the reins around our children's lives. But I want to ask Barbara, as it relates to the book, the backstories of the women, the mothers um, in the story were so profound. And I would go as far as saying tragic, each and every single story (laughs) that these women came to this country with. It's tragic. And it also makes you think, you know, we, I don't know, I think I might take for granted like the backstories of when I people watch, I often think like, ooh, what are their stories? You know, where do they live? Why do they come to this park or mall or wherever they are? Why do they choose what they're wearing? I love kind of thinking into the story of each individual. But when we think back to the backstories of their parents or a lot of individuals in this country, you know, have immigrant roots, what was that like? And anyway, I'd like to hear which backstory of the characters touched you the most and why. There was two that really hit me. I think, well, one, Suyan's story where, because I'm a twin, so I, I was like, I felt a lot of emotion when she went from carrying her babies to not carrying her babies. And as a mother, you have to really think about how hard that must have been to let go of your life, because that's your life. She carried, that was her life for nine months. And that's just an extension of your life. So I will say this, every single one of these women already lived a lifetime before they came to the United States. Right. That's true. They already lived a full adult life before they came to the United States. And so to me, it was like a parallel to their daughter's being adults, but then having an awakening. And now they have a second life. I guess you could say Mm, the way their parents literally had a second life. They metaphorically had that second life when they came to terms with their own relationship with their parents and how that affected their adulthood and what they were going to do moving forward. So I I just needed to say that. But yes, uh, Suyan, I talked about Lindo already, but the strength of Lindo. But I will, there was something that I'm I'm pretty sure it was Anne May. No, no, no. It wasn't Anne May. Ying Ying. When she talked about the moon goddess. Mm. I don't know if you ladies remember that story. Yeah. And about that moment in her life where she was being like, I felt like she was being berated by her grandmother. Like, behave. Your mother's going to do it. Your mother. And she falls into, she like thinks if I take all, before she falls into the water, she gets like stains on her shirt. So then she decides to take a whole bunch of blood and put it on her clothes. I know. I was like, what are you doing? Like, they're not going to notice. They're not going to (laughs) notice. And I don't know. Sometimes when we are adults, we make the mistakes. But then we are so embarrassed by just something so little that, I don't know, ladies, if you go through this sometimes, you're like, what can I do to hide the fact that I did this ridiculous thing that I, that, no one probably is going to care that you have a little mark, right? But then you've got to like 
conflate it because yeah, of your embarrassment. And then once once somebody people realize what happened, they're like, babe, it wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> like you didn't have to do all yeah. that. No, it's that's facts, facts on that. Yeah, no, I totally like whenever Robert drives my new car, I'm like, careful, be careful, be careful. And then I was the first one to scratch the rim. <laughs> and I spent like two days going, what, what am I going to say? What can I do? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. And I had all sorts of stories, but then I finally was like, I scratched the rim. <laughs> yes. And so we yig yig with that when she talked about that, that part of her life. And honestly, that actually to me was such a, and I think that's why that story was told because in her adult life, I think that it resonated with her where she became the, I don't know, she started to become less than what she was because all these women were strong in some form or fashion. And I I think her way of coping was to be less than what she was. You know what? That's an interesting point that you made where Ying Ying, for those that have not yet the book yet, and as you know, in our podcast, there are spoiler alerts, right? Because this is a book club. (laughs) she was raised in an extremely wealthy family. I mean, the art that was in that home, the paintings, the art decor, and she was beautiful. And she caught the attention of an older man. And she almost like didn't realize her worth because when he started, I guess, flirting with her, which was so gross. <laughs> it was like, oh, this older person that everyone respects is looking at me. Oh, I'm worth something then. So maybe I should marry him when he expressed interest in marrying her. She didn't love him. She was, she was what, 16? I mean, we didn't know at 16. Yeah, I know. But she felt that, oh, I should be happy because he's looking at me and, you know, he's older and he's is well-respected. And from what I remember in the book, he was not that attractive and he was not nice, but that really was secondary. And it played out because they got married. Shortly after that marriage, he left her, literally walked out, (laughs) went and lived with another woman in some other town somewhere. And so it was, she wasn't widowed and she wasn't divorced. So here she is single, married, young, like worthless, pretty much like your man left you culturally not worth anything now. And she came from this really prominent upbringing. And with, she had the nanny and they had these incredible outings with her family and the finest clothes and all these things to be in this state of shame almost. And then she loses herself for 10 years living with a poor family member in a small village and not really doing anything. Not, and so 10 years. So then let's just think about this. Because as you said, Barbara, each of these women have lived full lives before coming to the US and having the experiences they had with their children, their daughters. But there are so many more lessons within each of their stories, which is fascinating. How many of us lose ourselves, right? Toby were mentioning not too long ago, we lose ourselves. And here she lost the sense of who she was for 10 years. But there's hope because 10 years later, (laughs) she she finally left the village. But I would say as much as I enjoyed this book, there was a lot of tragedy in their backstories and sort of, like you said, Barbara, a second chance coming to the U.S. and then coming full circle, making mistakes during the second chance with their, their daughters. And then each of them 
at their old age as the mothers and then the daughters as they're aging sort of reconcile these journeys? I definitely think culturally from what I know, and I don't know a lot in these situations where they were immigrant mothers, they didn't really share a lot of their, like, I think it was that mother that was saying like, she doesn't even know who I am. I've been great. I've done great things. I've been strong. And each of them, it's a myth. So the the lesson is as a mother, share your stories, share them and and let them know like who I am to you Mm. is for better for us who part of what my upbringing was like, I, you can't separate it. So maybe understanding that it is better for children to just know like the vulnerabilities and the experiences and how that made me who I am and how, who you become will impact if you have children, them as well. So to be a, not necessarily an open book to, I mean, I, I'm pretty much an open book to my kids, but I think in my situation, my kids know everything about my past, everything like good, bad, and ugly, but we didn't talk about it in a way like, Hey, you know what? This is my past. And I think this is why these things became so important to me. Mm, That's a good point. Which is a different conversation. It is a different conversation. It's not just, Oh, I ran track and then I went to this college and (laughs) it's like, no, those are laying facts as opposed to, you know, I did this and I didn't do that. And I had this regret. So when, for example, like at university of Florida, I was the captain of the cheerleading team. Everybody was like, you should try out. And I didn't try out. And the reality is I didn't try out because I was, had always made every team and I didn't want to be that person that didn't make it. And I just kept telling myself like, I don't really want to do it. Well, that was dumb. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, I, I copped yeah. out and oh, I got wow. scared. And yeah. I, to tell that story to my kids and explain to them, the reason why I don't want you to cop out is because I actually sit in regret. Yeah. So it's, it's a different story. It's not just telling them I didn't do it. It's telling them I didn't do it. And the reason why I don't want, I put you into uncomfortable situations sometimes is I'd rather you have no regrets. Well, let me ask you that. Speaking of kids, which two of the daughters, Toby, because again, their daughters sound like they have not as tragic lives, but it wasn't <laughs> wasn't anything to celebrate. Which of the two daughters do you, which of their stories like really impacted you one way or another, like either got you angry or you were really um, inspired by? What would you say? Well, I definitely go back to Waverly because I do see the victimization of that pressure on her and how that must have felt for my kids. They definitely weren't as snarky as she was, but I do have some regrets in just the extreme demand that I put on them and how they must have felt very frustrated by those expectations. So I see how Waverly could have been that way. My kids are so much nicer than her. She's not a very nice person. I mean, she picks on her friends or so-called friends. So, but I do empathize with what that must have been like with her mom pressuring. And Waverly as the chess champion, right? The child prodigy. Right. And how, how she must have felt that incredible pressure. I definitely think my daughters are significantly nicer people (laughs) than Waverly to me and to their friends. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if I relate to any of the other ones so much, but both dynamics I related to in that story in particular. I would say for the daughters, their stories that I felt stood out the most to me was, (laughs) there were two. One was married to Harold. Harold is the architect. Oh, I want to kill him. So that's Ying Ying, St. Clair's daughter, Lena. Yeah. And Ying Ying, she's the one who married 
who grew up wealthy and married this guy who left her, right? And she ended up living in this poor village and then coming back to town, working in a town and then meeting this American soldier and eventually comes to the U.S. and has Lena. So this is Yin Yang St. Clair with Lena St. Clair. And Lena is with this architect who she actually, they're working together. She inspires him to open up this practice. She's like his support, his biggest cheerleader. You can do it. You can do it. He opens his practice. They just does everything with helping him bring on the team and the clients and the ad campaigns, all of this. And Harold doesn't really recognize her for all that she's done for him. And in my opinion, like, what was it? Just kind of sees her as a little peon. Yeah. He doesn't even pay her as much as he pays the other workers and she does more than them. I was like, oh my gosh. Totally takes advantage. Horrible. <laughs> so good. Wait, then this was the relationship where they split everything, right? Yep. yep. That got under my skin. Like every part of that story <laughs> got yeah, under I my skin. Really okay. I was really mad. Okay. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you are the child of this. So again, if she actually understood her history. Right and understood the lineage that she came from, this prominent family in China that accomplished X, Y, Z. Yes, her mother's story took a really sharp left turn, but if she understood her roots, she wouldn't have let this gentleman, I wouldn't say take advantage of her, but she didn't see her worth and therefore he didn't see her worth. And that's a lesson that we all need to learn. If we don't see the worth, how can we expect someone else to see it, right? Exactly. And so to... Then go, okay, she's super independent. So they agree to split everything as they're dating. Now they're married. How tedious this becomes where they're deciding who pays for the medicine for their cat. Yeah, ridiculous. Insane, insane. They have Post-its on the refrigerator. I bought milk, $5. I bought, like, what? I would not, that would have been the first and last time. But what what was really cool was even though she has a, a less stressed relationship with her mother, but. It's funny in the end, her mom helps her see the ludicrousness of it all, which is cool because you ever notice, ladies, that your daughters will call you and ask you questions that you know they are asking it of you because they want you to give them the tougher answers, right? Like yes. my daughter, like, should I take the day off of work? I'm really tired. No. Now, you know that she knows I would have said no, but needed that person to be the heavy. So I think that at the end of the day, in this story, she needed her mom to come there and say, hey, you know what? This is crazy. And she finally did because she really didn't give her daughter very many opinions. But at the end of the day, at the very end of the story, she finally steps up and says, I got to tell you, honey, this is a Mm -hmm. (laughs) no-go. And it gives her strength. So sometimes we talk about we have to give space and we do, but sometimes, of course, also we have to be a mom, even to adult children and say like, listen, I love you. You don't have to harp about it, which my middle name for the girls, they call me Harper because I harp on everything and repeat myself. I'm a repeater, but you do and should sometimes step up and not be afraid to say your feelings. Like I'm worried, yes. I'm worried about you because this is not normal. Mm. I think Lena's situation woke up Ying Ying too. Yeah, I think so. I think it woke her up as well because she, Ying Ying, went through her own fog. And Lena grew up watching her dad constantly apologize for her husband. And she probably saw a little bit, I think, without her mother telling her, 
I think Lena had that idea of, well, the husband has to take the lead. The husband has to take the lead right. because her mom wasn't showing her self-worth. Mm. So, and kids without saying it, mm. kids will see that. They mimic, they mimic. And they mimic what they see. Exactly. That's a really good point. Cause the dad would always finish the mom's sentences. That whole story was just tragic to me. I mean, from start to finish. The other story that I thought was, was Anne May's daughter, Rose. So Anne May, for, again, for our listeners, her mother was a concubine. Her mother was forced into a marriage. No, Anne May, yeah. Her mother was forced into a marriage that she didn't want and to this wealthy man. And she had to give up her daughter. And she finally got her daughter back, which is, yeah, Anne May. The mom got her daughter back, Anne May. And brought her daughter into the home of this wealthy man as the concubine. I think she was concubine number four. Something like that. Something three or four. Yeah, I think she was. Concubine number four, yeah. And she had the lowest rank, the least important, but she was the most beautiful and most witty. And she was just not treated well. And so now here she is in the home with her daughter, seeing what could lie ahead for her daughter. And ultimately, Anne May's mother took her life due to the cultural belief that they had as, as it related to ghosts coming back and haunting you. And therefore you don't want to mess with them. And so because her mother took her life, the father, stepfather treated Anne May very well. And she was raised in this wealthy home. And anyway, so now Anne May has her daughter, Rose. And Rose marries a pharmacist by the name of Ted. And they marry, they meet in their teens, Ted's parents aren't really too keen on the fact that Rose is Chinese. And they use that as their bond to start this relationship, which then turns into a marriage. And it seems pretty loveless as you hear about their experiences together. And throughout their marriage, Rose makes zero decisions. Do you want coffee? You decide. Do you want red or blue? You decide. Do you want to live east or west? You decide. So Rose would never make any decisions. And that would stem from her witnessing her baby brother drowning at a young age. And so that statement in the book where it says she became the victim to Ted's hero. I thought that was so powerful because I feel that many times we become victim to some sort of fantasy that we have in our head to someone else, whatever that is. If it's the boss, if it's the mate, if it's the parent, and we, we sort of fall into that role and we play helpless. And the mom, I believe, says that your indecision is a decision. So even though individuals that are not making decisions think that, okay, I'm okay because I didn't decide. Well, you're just as responsible because you not deciding is still a decision. And to finally see that resolve where Rose, when she's served divorce papers, decides not to just lay down and accept all the terms that Ted gives her, who ends up cheating on her, and then choosing to remarry <laughs> moments after the divorce would be final. She's like, no, enough is enough. And to see that stance, I think that was probably one of the highlights in the book where Rose was finally able to stand up for herself and with the support of her mother. So yeah, that was those two women I thought had just some powerful present day stories, which teaches lessons that we all can learn from and continue to learn from and pass down. Yeah. And I think that another lesson that's really interesting 
as we pass down the good and the bad of who we are. And as these mothers become full circle, their kids actually start becoming full circle. But what's interesting, and I think it was like a Bruce Lee thing, but it was a, a statement that really my husband found profound. If we don't lick our demons, right? So if we're procrastinators, but we don't become not procrastinators, or if we overeat and we don't become moderate, we will pass those on to our children. Mm. Yes. And breaking generational curses as well. Right. And so these women, as these adult mothers start finally figuring things out, their adult children are able to get out the demons that their mothers pass forward. And it's oh, really wow. interesting. That I love that. See that. That's so powerful. Thank you, Toby. I have a funny anecdote that I wanted to tell you guys regarding Waverly and how her mom was like constantly putting pressure on her daughter. <laughs> uh, really quickly, my when I was I was in a line of work where I was a manager and I had to hire people. And one day my mom was like, oh, let me see your card because I had a business card. I was all proud of it. And I was like, here you go. And a few weeks went by and I started to get different young Haitian men and women were coming into my office wanting to get a job. But they a lot of times they didn't have their license. They and then when I would tell them, you know, they couldn't whatever and they had to do, the, they would look at me wide eyed like they were surprised that I said no or they weren't hireable or, or for whatever reason. Some actually had their license I hired, but a lot of them didn't. And when my boss one day said, we're getting a lot of Haitians coming into the office. And I was like, yeah, we are. And it was just a very, it was just an observation, but it was just really a lot. Like, and normally we're very diverse and we just get a diverse group of people coming in all the time. And I remember like, you know, a few weeks later, I'm sitting down with my mother and she's listening to the radio and she says, oh, honey, are you going anywhere? And I said, no. Why? She goes, well, hold on a second. And a popular pastor, a Haitian pastor was on the radio, gets on the radio and he's doing a show. And my mother calls in and says, hey, you know, my daughter that I was telling you about that, that hires Haitians that you come into oh the office. God. Well, she's here right now. Would you like to speak to her? And my mouth dropped. Hilarious. <laughs> mom. That's hilarious. You know, that reminds me, my talking about expectations and first generation children here. We have a running joke. <laughs> my mom has really high expectations for all of us. And thankfully my siblings and I have, I think, met some of them. Nah, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so funny. Like I'll I'll share like a new accomplishment and She's like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and I'm like, I literally just became, you know, the vice president of blah, 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 blah. Oh, that's nice. You're <laughs> I'm getting there. Like, when am I going to like actually be there? <laughs> Never. <laughs> oh, <It's> like, <laughs> that is funny. It's so cute. But I think, you know what? I think it's wonderful, though, that our parents see so much greatness in us and pushes us. And I appreciate my mom not letting me just settle for whatever. Like, no, you can continue to push. You can continue to rise. You continue. And yes, you've gotten this, but you can continue to rise in whatever way that means to us. And I really appreciate that in her. And I can see why I have so much appreciation for all that she's gone through, all that she sacrificed for us 
and how grateful that we as children are in a better place to be able to give our children more. I mean, it's something that we could easily take for granted that we don't. And this book was so powerful because it just shows you from not just one person's point of view, but eight different people's point of view at various stages in their lives. And I could see why that it has really tested time in terms of its popularity and its relevance. So if you have not yet gotten the book, guys, go get the Joy Luck Club. It is powerful. One of the things we didn't get to touch on, I do want to share this before we end up wrapping up the show, is it is beautifully written. It is poetry. And if you are a writer or if you're inspired by just really great writing styles, Amy Tan hit this out the park. It is wonderful. And if you love culture and just want to take a journey and an adventure to another world, then you're going to love the Joy Luck Club for that. I mean, you learn so much about the Chinese culture. It is, it's so, so beautifully written and detailed. And, and so I know we didn't touch on that as much in terms of the literary power of this book. It is really, really, really a great book on so many levels. I agree. I agree too. I agree as well. All right. What else do we got? Any final words before we, we say? Well, I was wondering what you guys thought happened next. What do you think happens next? What do you think, Barb? Well, I think Jen goes on to meet her sister. She has a wonderful time. She gets her life together. She gets married. She has kids and she passes all her mother's wonderful lessons down to her children. So that's that. Rose gets stronger. Rose, I personally think Rose eventually leaves her. her, Well, actually, she's done with him. He tries to get her back. She's like, no, stick with the woman you have. Oh. And she marries somebody <laughs> that she truly loves, but she marries them as knowing what her worth is. And she lives happily ever after. Same thing with Waverly. She marries Rich. Her mother's happy. She's happy. They go on to have beautiful children and they connect and they learn more. Lindo teaches Waverly more about the Chinese culture. And the same thing with Lena. I think Lena actually shows her strength as well. Her husband refalls in love with the woman that she is, and they go on to live happily ever after. Everybody's happy. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. I think what happens is more about Mahjan and that after she goes to China and meets her twin sisters, she comes back with a renewed desire to play Mahjan and keep the Joy Luck Club going. And that the mm-hmm. next scene is actually like, next scene is that their children are playing Mahjan. <gasps> yeah. And that, oh, and that it continues. Yes. And it just goes on. And it's Mahjan is, because, you know, oral history is so important. And through Mahjan, oral history keeps getting passed down. So that's kind oh, of what I think happens. That's amazing. That's amazing. Oh, I love that. I want to learn how to play Mahjong, ladies. I was, you know what? As I was reading this, I was absolutely intrigued as well. I'm My mom played it when I was a kid. She played it. It's a, oh, it's a lot of Jewish families really? play it too. And I think there's a Mahjong club in my town, but I, my mom said it's, it's really complicated. It's not like a, it's pretty, it's a, yeah, it's not easy. They mentioned it in the book. Yeah. They mentioned it in the book that the Jewish culture has that as well. Yeah, yeah they did mention that. I'm curious if it's anything. It reminded me of Domino's. That's what I, when I was, listening to it and how you have to be really strategic when you're playing and pay attention and these tile cards. And yeah, that's what it reminded me of. I love both of those. What happens next? I don't know. To add to that, I feel that these women 
really develop a newfound love and appreciation of their culture and do what their mothers didn't get a chance to do, which is really introduce their culture to their children in a very loving way and where their children want to continue to be involved and pass it on. And so I do think that there is this really interesting chasm that happens between the generation that moves into another country and their first generation afterwards. It's a unique experience that only those two generations that are connected in that way can have and live and appreciate. But I think that if you're able to reconcile that bridge between the two cultures, you're able to really give a gift to the next generation. So I personally, as a mom, I'm going to really just think about where I am in my journey with my culture. And I've had my kids say, you didn't teach us Patois, blah, blah, literally complaining to me that I didn't teach them how to speak with a Jamaican accent. (laughs) Just like, really? Like, I mean, so as it's just interesting how our children do become more interested in their parents' culture as they get older. And yeah. So anyway, that's my What Happens Next. And I really enjoyed this book, even though, like I said, there was a lot of tragedy that was shared. And I feel that where Amy Tan leaves us, where you can explore where these women are going to go in the future, I think is inspiring. I love it. Uh, My son actually got Duolingo, the app, so that he could learn Haitian Creole. Oh my gosh. I didn't even know they had that on. Okay. That's amazing. That's so, I'm going to tell my kids that. All right, ladies, it is time. It's time for us to wrap this up. And again, our next two books, Hunger by Roxanne Gay and The Cafe on the Edge of the World by John Streckley. This was a pleasure as always, my ladies. It definitely was. All right. Well, this is all, folks. Until next time, this is another episode of Tuesday's Book Club where we bring you transformational books that will change your life. I am Nova. And again, I am here with my lovely co-host, Toby and Barbara. And until next time, ciao. Bye, everyone.